Hey, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Crime Analyst and the Intelligence Cell. Now, before we dive back in, I'm going to give the usual heads up that these episodes may be triggering or upsetting. Listener discretion is advised. You're going to hear about real victims, real cases, real perpetrators and their behaviour at real crime scenes. And there are going to be some graphic details throughout this podcast series. Unfortunately, it comes with the territory. Murder is distressing. Victims being killed and harmed is a truly terrible business. Now, I mentioned in episode six that I would show you around the intelligence cell, which I posted on Crime Analyst Instagram at Crime Analyst. So go check that out if you want a behind the scenes look at my work and some of my charts and maps. And as I've said before, this is more than a podcast. It's about re-examining a case thoroughly with an experienced female lens, which is long overdue with this case, don't you think? So in episode seven, you'll recall that I discussed PS's arrest, which happened six years after Wilma McCann's murder and 11 years after the attack on the unnamed prostitute in 1969. I read an extract previously from the Byford Report, and I have to say that this detailed report that ran to 159 pages glossed over quite a few important details. And so, as always, I'm going to fill in some of the gaps. Another point to highlight was that the Byford report was confidential and therefore it wasn't even circulated to police staff when it was completed. Only the top echelons in policing were allowed to see it. This seems to me to be an oxymoron, doesn't it? This report was paid for with taxpayers' money with the correct aim of learning the lessons and yet the findings weren't circulated once it was published. And that's not the only thing. The Byford Report was only released in 2006, following a Freedom of Information Act request. That's right, 2006. And so that was some 25 years later. So one has to ask, how committed were they exactly to learning the so-called lessons? Like I said, I didn't get eyeballs on the report when I was at New Scotland Yard, and my unit was set up in the wake of the Byford Report to ensure that lessons were learnt. So my question is, how do frontline staff, the rank and file, the call handlers, the custody sergeants, the detectives, the analysts, the intelligence officers, the researchers and other specialist staff truly learn if we're not privy to this report and to others? And I have to say that lessons to be learned is probably the most overutilized phrase in policing. Yet rarely are the lessons ever truly learned. For example, every domestic homicide review has a focus on lessons to be learned, every serious case review, lessons to be learned. Yet where is the accountability and governance and oversight to ensure those lessons are the right ones and that they're rolled out across policing? What about the national lessons? One police force may learn, or some people in it, but what about all the other police services? Where's the framework to show how these lessons have been implemented and that there is a change in attitude, aptitude and leadership thereafter? Now, I digress somewhat from the case, but I think you get my point and I'll be circling back to this in another episode. So back to the drama surrounding PS's arrest, I want to tell you more about that in detail. As soon as P.S. entered the police station, Sergeant Armitage turned around, having looked at the Marilyn Moore photo fit, and tongue-in-cheek said, that's the Yorkshire R word right there. He was a dead ringer for the photo fit. P.S. was asked if he had been questioned by the investigative team about the murders, and he replied, everyone has been questioned. 
They are always questioning. It makes you sick. Interesting. A point to note here is that he doesn't flat out say yes or no. This is instructive to me and indicates possible deception. Secondly, when asked if he went with prostitutes, he said no, despite the fact that he was arrested with Olivia Rivas. And at no point did he make eye contact with any of the officers when they spoke with him. Apparently, he smelt like he hadn't washed for days and his hair was standing up on end, which made him look much taller. Now, I'm telling you these details for good reason. It provides insight into how P.S. behaved. It's really quite astounding that firstly he was able to hide the hammer and knife at the point of being arrested. But remember, he hid a knife before when he was arrested in Manningham in 1969. And at the police station, he was allowed to go to the toilet unsupervised and managed to hide another knife in the toilet system. It's staggering, really. But Sergeant Ring did redeem himself by going back to the scene and finding the weapons behind the storage tank under the leaves. Otherwise, they would have had no evidence to charge him with other than the theft of number plates. Detective Sergeant Des O'Boyle was called from the incident room at around 11.10am on Saturday the 3rd of January. He had been on the investigation for about three years and he had interviewed hundreds of potential suspects. His boss, Detective Chief Inspector George Smith, told him that the suspect they had in custody was interesting. He was a lorry driver who'd been arrested in Sheffield with false number plates and that he had denied any involvement with prostitutes despite being arrested with one. Detective Sergeant Des Boyle jumped in a car with Detective Constable Ron Hill and he reviewed the file. Straight away, he got the sense that P.S. was a good suspect. He could see from the file that he'd never been positively eliminated and it was his wife who had alibied him. And when they arrived at Dewsbury Police Station, they examined P.S.'s Brown Rover and found three screwdrivers. But it wasn't until 3 p.m. that they came face to face with P.S. When they entered the interview room, the detectives announced that they were from the R-Squad. P.S. seemed surprised. They started to ask him questions and they took some notes. Interviews were not tape recorded back then. P.S. did not appear to be nervous. In fact, he was very cool and confident answering questions. After about two hours, Detective Sergeant O'Boyle asked him for a blood and saliva sample and P.S. started to backtrack. He was worried and asked, what if it matches? Detective Sergeant O'Boyle asked him outright if he was the killer and P.S. replied, no, he wasn't. Then what have you got to fear? asked Detective Sergeant O'Boyle. P.S. reluctantly agreed and said that he'd give them one. At 5.20pm, the results were in. It was a match. P.S. was blood group B. And as soon as Detective Sergeant O'Boyle opened the door, P.S. asked if he had the results. Detective Sergeant O'Boyle said that he did, but he didn't expand further and he didn't tell him what the results showed. P.S. started talking. He told Detective Sergeant O'Boyle that he and Sonia had had a row and he'd gone out to get away from her and that he just wanted to talk to a prostitute about his, in inverted commas, domestic problems. Detective Sergeant O'Boyle asked him where he was on bonfire night. He replied that he was at home with his wife. That was the night that Teresa Sykes was attacked in Huddersfield. Detective Sergeant O'Boyle told P.S. he was going to see Sonia the next day and he'd ask her about his movements. 
P.S. became agitated. He didn't want them to tell Sonia that he'd been with a prostitute. Detective Sergeant O'Boyle ended the interview. He got home around 11pm and two hours later his colleague, Detective Inspector John Boyle, called him to say that Sergeant Ring had recovered a hammer and knife from the arrest scene. Now I know it's confusing, Detective Sergeant O'Boyle and Detective Inspector Boyle, but they're two separate officers and know they're not related. Detective Sergeant O'Boyle knew that this was a game changer. The next day, he went and collected the weapons from Sheffield and he called the duty custody sergeant to ask for P.S.'s door to be kept open 24-7 and for him to be placed on suicide watch. Detective Sergeant O'Boyle went back to the police station with the weapons and checked in on P.S. who had complained of having had a poor night's sleep. Poor dear. Detective Sergeant O'Boyle told him that they'd been to Sheffield. P.S. then told him that he knew the game was up. At around 11.40am, Detective Sergeant O'Boyle and Detective Superintendent Holland pulled up outside 6 Garden Lane, Bradford. There was a dusting of sleet and snow covering the front garden. The lawn was well trimmed. The two detectives knocked on the door, an evidence bag containing the knife and the hammer in hand. Sonia Sutcliffe opened the door. She was wearing a large overcoat. She didn't seem surprised to see them, but she did scold them for holding her husband. As they entered the house, they were greeted with a cold blast of air, but the house itself was immaculate, clean and tidy, everything in its place. Detective Superintendent Holland made his way into the kitchen and immediately found what he was looking for. The knife block. Straight away, he noticed that the second largest knife was missing. Detective Superintendent Holland held up the knife in the bag. It matched the set perfectly. Hey, lovely. What's your makeup go-to? What do you need to face the day? Now, for me, if I apply my eyeliner, my brilliant eye brightener, mascara and red lipstick, I feel ready to face anything. But I know every now and again, I need to zhuzh up my makeup. And my amazing sponsor, Thrive Cosmetics, has a full line of makeup to refresh your everyday look. With clean, skin-loving ingredients, their foolproof products make it easy for any skill level to apply. Also, Thrive Cosmetics' Bigger Than Beauty mission is amazing. For every product purchased, Thrive Cosmetics donates products and funds to help communities thrive. I love that Thrive Cosmetics supports domestic violence victims, breast cancer survivors, and women who are homeless. Now, if you want to wreck from me, you cannot go wrong with the Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara. Thrive Cosmetics Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara has a unique formula which creates tubes around each eyelash to lengthen them. And they use nourishing ingredients that support longer, stronger and healthier looking lashes over time. Plus, it's super easy to remove and slides right off with warm water and doesn't leave smudges. So treat yourself or someone you love and help women thrive together. Refresh your everyday look with Thrive Cosmetics luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 10% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com slash crimeanalyst. That's thrivecosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash crimeanalyst for 10% off your first order. 
calling all lovers of mystery. Prepare to don your detective hat in June's Journey, a free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. Take a trip in time to the glitzy 20s and play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. The thrill is endless with new chapters added weekly, allowing you to not only enjoy the detective adventure, but also to personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Detective Sergeant O'Boyle searched the garage and found a hacksaw. He bagged and tagged it as evidence. Side note, a hacksaw was used in Jean Jordan's case when P.S. returned to the scene and tried to decapitate her. However, only a few people knew about that at the time. As Detective Superintendent Holland and Detective Sergeant O'Boyle escorted Sonia to the police station, they asked her where her husband was on bonfire night. She told them that he had been back late that night, after 10pm, as they were supposed to see some friends, but they had had to cancel. What they learned from Sonia was in direct contradiction to what P.S. had told them. At lunchtime, P.S. was interviewed again by Detective Inspector John Boyle and Detective Sergeant Peter Smith. Detective Inspector John Boyle told P.S. that he didn't believe his story, that he had put fake number plates on the car due to his drink-driving charge. He told him he thought he was in serious trouble. P.S. then said, Yes, it's me. I am the Yorkshire R-word. He said that he had killed all the women. With that, Detective Inspector Boyle read the formal caution and asked if he wanted a lawyer. P.S. replied that he did not, and he just wanted to tell him what he had done and that he was glad it was all over. You see, in these moments, rarely is it as dramatic as you see in the movies or on TV shows. Detective Inspector Boyle asked him about the last murder, and P.S. said that he had killed Jacqueline Hill. He then gave further details, which included that he had followed Jacqueline and that he had hit her on the head with a hammer and dragged her out of sight. When asked what else he did, he said that he stabbed her in the lung with a screwdriver and that he stabbed her in the eye because her eyes were open and she was looking at him accusingly. He said he then pulled off her clothes. These are things that only the killer knew, and so Detective Inspector Boyle was content that they had their man. P.S. was asked if he kept newspaper cuttings of the attacks or any record, and he replied that he didn't. He said, they're all in my brain. He said he didn't want a lawyer, but he did want to speak with his wife. Detective Inspector Boyle jumped out of the interview room to go and get some statement forms. He immediately found Detective Superintendent Holland and Detective Sergeant O'Boyle and told them that P.S. had confessed. Detective Superintendent Holland went to see what P.S. looked like and commented that he looked like a weedy wimp. Assistant Chief Constable Oldfield and Chief Constable Gregory also turned up unexpectedly. They not only turned up, but they entered the interview room, which annoyed some of the detectives. Now, this was very unusual for senior officers to interrupt such a crucial interview and at such a critical time. Chief Constable Gregory asked P.S. if he would like to see his wife. P.S. replied that yes, he did. Extraordinary. 
P.S. then wrote a statement confessing to 13 murders. He started at 2.50pm on Sunday the 4th of January 1981 and finished at 1.12am on Monday the 5th of January. It was 33 pages long. Now, I don't intend to read out P.S.'s full confession, as I don't want his voice to dominate the narrative, but I have pulled out some of the salient points that are interesting to me from an analytical point of view. Firstly, P.S. said at the start that he just wanted to talk to the women about his domestic problems, i.e. his problems at home. Right there, there are undertones of poor me syndrome. Now, I coined this term for men who, at the point of accountability, manufacture some sob story or some health issue to garner sympathy from those around them. And saying this to the male detectives, it was probably his intention to play on the whole trouble with the wife trope. You know what it's like. Trouble with her indoors, in inverted commas, a phrase I cringe at for its layering of misogyny and sexism. But no doubt P.S. was appealing to the male audience in order to garner hympathy. Kate Mann introduced the word hympathy to describe disproportionate sympathy towards men that commit acts of domestic and sexual violence against women and girls. However, I think it's much broader than that. I think girls and women are groomed to be far more sympathetic to men in every aspect of life, and so I think it plays in here too. Now, in his confession statement, P.S. also referred to each victim by name. He remembered their names without any prompting, and he also recalled vividly the detail of what happened. This points me to the fact that he undoubtedly followed the media. And throughout his confession statement, he flipped the script at every opportunity. He made out it was the women's fault, and that it was the women who had approached him. He also said that the only reason that he pulled up their tops was so that he could see what he was doing and to make it easier when he stabbed them. What utter nonsense. Other killers just stab straight through clothing if the intention is just to kill. He wanted to see them naked. He wanted to expose them and to see their breasts. And what he chose to admit was just as important. Key details like masturbating at the scene i.e. actually admitting that he was turned on by what he was doing was the thing that he was clearly trying to protect in the statement initially. Although later on in the statement he did say that he wanted sexual revenge on the women, but again that's different from feeling sexually aroused by stabbing and mutilating a woman's body. When he referred to the women, he tended to use their surnames to create distance and depersonalise them further. But interestingly, when he talked about Jacqueline Hill, he referred to her as Miss Hill. And so it would seem he valued her in other ways that he didn't the other victims, other than Jane MacDonald, who he said he was sorry about as he didn't realise she was so young. The only victim he didn't name was Marilyn Moore, although he did confess to attacking her. And he didn't confess to Marguerite Walls. So he confessed to Wilma McCann, Emily Jackson, Irene Richardson, Patricia Atkinson, Jane MacDonald, Maureen Long, Jean Jordan, Marilyn Moore, Helen Richter, Yvonne Pearson, Vera Millwood, Josephine Whitaker, Barbara Leach and Jacqueline Hill. He gave very specific details of each attack, including what each woman was wearing. So that's why it's clear to me that he followed what was happening in the media. The cases he confessed to are those that the police linked in the media. He also admitted that he did move out to Manchester and attack Jean Jordan when it got too hot, in inverted commas, after the near miss on Maureen Long. He admitted that he knew Josephine Whitaker was not a prostitute and that he just wanted to kill a woman. He approached her and engaged her in conversation, asking if she drove, 
and he said that it must be hard to know who to trust. All the while, he had his hand on the hammer in his coat pocket, ready to do the inevitable, his words. These details are important. He knew exactly what he was doing. The attacks were premeditated, controlled, purposeful. He tried to engage the women before, and the fact that he was talking about trust with his hand on the hammer, knowing full well what Jacqueline's fate was, reveals how much of a power and control kick he got from the precursor behaviour. The stalking, the toying with his prey right before he attacked her. And the fact that he could just go about his everyday business afterwards, as he explained in his statement, as if nothing had happened, is also instructive. These are all very important points in terms of preparing a case for court. And these are all important points that I opine throughout my analysis of the case based on crime scene behaviours. Just after 11pm, Sonia arrived at Dewsbury Police Station. What on earth is going on, Peter? she said. He replied... It's all those women. I've killed all those women. What do you mean, said Sonia. P.S. said, it's me. I'm the Yorkshire R-word. I killed all those women. To the amazement of Detective Sergeant O'Boyle, Sonia replied, What on earth did you do that for, Peter? Even a sparrow has a right to live. He assured her he hadn't had sex with the women that he killed, except one, Helen Richter, and that was only... In inverted commas, mechanical, he said. But in his statement, he said that he was sexually aroused after he hit her over the head with a hammer. Sonia Sutcliffe's reaction has been reported widely in the media, and I have to say it is unusual, but let's not forget the extraordinary event unfolding here. There's nothing usual about any of it, about the magnitude of the information she's learning about her husband, and I don't want to distract and detract from that. This is about P.S. and P.S. alone. The focus should be on him. He killed all the women and attacked many more, not Sonia. Senior officers also held a press conference on the Sunday evening at West Yorkshire Police Headquarters in Dewsbury. Here's an extract from that press conference, and you'll hear Chief Constable Gregory speaking first. He is being questioned in relation to the Yorkshire murders. It is anticipated that he will appear before the court in Dewsbury tomorrow. Is it fair then to say that the general hunt for the so-called Yorkshire is now being wound down? But from this moment on... Right. Can you tell us whether he has a Geordie accent? I cannot tell you that because I've not heard him speak. But I can tell you that we are absolutely delighted with developments at this stage. Absolutely delighted. Can you all smile? Really delighted. Absolutely delighted. Senior detectives were clearly euphoric that the killer had been caught. It had taken many, many years after all. And it's curious to me that Chief Constable Gregory, when asked, said he didn't know what accent P.S. had. We know he did have a conversation with P.S. 
And I have no doubt most senior officers, along with others on the investigation, would have asked this very question as soon as it was known that a good suspect had been identified and had confessed. If they hadn't set eyes on him personally themselves, the police jungle drums would have been beating. The next day, the exhausted officers were still taking P.S.'s long statement, which would finally run to 33 type pages, and they were under huge pressure to finish, as Chief Constable Gregory wanted P.S. in court in the quickest time possible. P.S. signed his statement, and at 4.41pm on Monday, he was formally charged with murdering Jacqueline Hill. However, the interviewing and arresting officers, Detective Inspector Boyle, Detective Sergeant Smith and Detective Sergeant O'Boyle, realised that due to everything that had happened, they had forgotten to search P.S. P.S. was still wearing the same clothing that he was arrested and brought in wearing on the Friday night. This was a major homicide investigation, and as soon as they suspected that he was a bona fide and genuine suspect, he should have been stripped, searched and all his clothing seized and sent to the lab for analysis. This was a major error in police procedure. When they did search him right before his court appearance, he reluctantly removed his clothes. The reason for his hesitation soon became alarmingly clear. The officers found that P.S. had holes in his coat pockets so that he could reach for weapons hidden in the lining of the coat. Reaching inside the lining, Detective Sergeant O'Boyle found a pair of underpants, which P.S. said were his. P.S. then took his trousers off, and Detective Sergeant O'Boyle was astonished to see that P.S. was wearing a V-neck sweater with the arms pulled on over his legs. The V was around the front of his groin, and his penis was exposed. When asked what he was wearing, P.S. replied, leg warmers. He was told to take the jumper off. Detective Sergeant O'Boyle held it in his hands and saw that padding had been sewn onto the arms on the inside where his knees were. He'd sewn extra padding to make it more comfortable when he was on his knees, stabbing the women and masturbating over them. This was clearly part of his attack and kill kit and was yet further evidence that these offences were premeditated and also sexually motivated. However, none of the senior officers were informed about this development and it was never documented and no details appeared in P.S.'s statement. Now, one could be generous about the reasons why this didn't happen. Perhaps they were exhausted and I would imagine that they were. But this is a very significant discovery as well as a major breach of police procedure. The clothing he was wearing when he was arrested told its own story about his sexual motivation and state of mind but these particular details never made its way into evidence. This had very serious repercussions at trial. P.S.'s clothing was bagged in separate evidence bags. He was given a change of clothing, and they then got him ready to leave for court. P.S. was handcuffed to Detective Sergeant O'Boyle as they drove in a van to Dewsbury Magistrates Court. As they arrived, more than 2,000 people had turned up. People wanted to see him. The man that had hidden in the shadows for so long was about to be revealed. People were angry. They were shouting and throwing things at the police van. Quite rightly, they wanted to see the man who had killed so many women and put the fear of God into many more. P.S. was apparently terrified and said to Detective Sergeant O'Boyle that he didn't want to get out of the van. He said he was worried that someone might have a gun. Again, what a coward, and shows his only concern is for himself. Me, myself and I. In the courtroom, P.S. was formally charged with the murder of Jacqueline Hill and theft of two motor vehicle registration plates. 
The hearing lasted about five minutes. He was then remanded into custody at Armalee Jail in Leeds to await trial. On Friday the 20th of February 1981, at Dewsbury Crown Court, P.S. was committed for trial, accused of 13 murders and seven attempted murders, and transferred to Leeds Crown Court. The 13 murders were those that he confessed to, and the seven attempted murders were Anna Rajowski, Olive Smelt, Marcella Claxton, Maureen Long, Marilyn Moore, Apagia Bandera, and Teresa Sykes. On April the 14th at Leeds Crown Court, the judge ruled that P.S. would go on trial at the Old Bailey in London. Now, the Old Bailey is the central criminal court where all the high-profile cases are heard. All were agreed that it was unlikely that P.S. would get a fair trial in Yorkshire. This hearing lasted about four minutes. And so the preliminaries of the trial began on Wednesday the 29th of April, 1981. I have to say that this is an incredibly short passage of time from the time of P.S.'s arrest to the time of trial to prepare such an extensive case. It's mind-blowing, really, but perhaps when you hear about what happened next, you'll understand why. And so the case was heard before Mr Justice Borum, number one court at the Old Bailey. When P.S. was asked about his plea on the 13 murder charges, he pleaded not guilty to murder, but guilty of manslaughter on the grounds of diminished responsibility. He also pleaded guilty to the seven charges of attempt murder. Unusually, the Attorney General himself, Mr Michael Havers QC, led for the prosecution. Now, for those of you who don't know, this is the top lawyer of the land, the superintendent, the head of the Crown Prosecution Service, effectively, Le Grand Fromage of Lawyers and QCs. QC stands for Queen's Counsel, and so this was extraordinary for him to prosecute the case himself. Well, Mr Michael Havers QC told the judge that he accepted P.S.'s not guilty pleas and that four psychiatrists who had interviewed P.S. had reached a consensus that it was diminished responsibility, the illness being paranoid schizophrenia. The judge, Mr Justice Borum, said that he had very grave concerns about P.S.'s pleas and he directed that Mr Michael Havers QC lay out in detail his reasoning for the Crown's acceptance of his plea. For the next two hours, Mr Michael Havers QC explained the reasons why and he based the state's argument on P.S.'s history, P.S.'s confession and P.S.'s conversations with the psychiatrist and the reports that the psychiatrist had written. He explained that psychiatrist Dr Hugo Milne opined P.S. couldn't control what he was doing. P.S. told a psychiatrist about his alleged reasons for the killings. He said in short that he had messages from God to kill prostitutes and that what he was doing was a divine mission. Dr Hugo Milne had a series of 11 interviews with P.S. It was on March 5th, during the 8th interview, and two months after his arrest, that P.S. made reference to his, in inverted commas, mission. P.S. had been describing how he had murdered his third victim, Irene Richardson, and concluded with, It was important to my cause that I had to carry on with the mission. Dr. Milne wrote in his report that P.S. said God gave him his mission to kill, that he was confident that he was called to do it, it was his calling, and he had no qualms about it. Therefore, Sir Michael Havers QC concluded that this was a case of diminished responsibility. Mr Justice Borum heard the argument and made his decision stating that what troubled him the most was that all of the psychiatrists had based their opinion on P.S.'s self-report alone, which was in stark contrast to the statement that he had given to police when he was first arrested and that he said 
that he felt a desire to kill women. He opined that that deserved to be tested. And the judge questioned where the evidence was which gave these doctors the factual basis of these pleas. The judge said that the case should be dealt with before a jury and that the case was a matter of great public interest. Excellent decision by the judge, showing a wealth of experience and challenging the narrative, his narrative, P.S.'s narrative that others had bought into. You see, if the judge had accepted the diminished responsibility plea, the case would have gone straight for sentencing and the sentencing tariff would have been much lesser and the victims and the public would not have got their day in court. And I have to say, this is such a confounding decision on behalf of Sir Michael Havers QC and the state. Why would they want to rush it through? Why did they not want to put PS on trial for all the murders and attempt murders? Surely it was in the public interest, given the national outcry about the case. Was it simply a decision made on the basis of saving vast amounts of money and or sparing the victims and their families the distress of a trial? Or was it a case of wanting to hide major problems with the investigation and sweep the whole case under the legislative and policing carpet as quickly as possible? Or was there perhaps something else at play? Either way, these events are truly astounding and confounding to me. And after a 90-minute lunch adjournment, there was further legal argument following which Sir Michael Havers QC informed the judge that he would be ready to go ahead with a jury trial on Friday the 1st of May. The defence requested an adjournment until the 5th of May in order to prepare the case, and the judge agreed. My goodness! What a complete U-turn on behalf of the Crown Prosecution Service. They went to court to tell the judge that they accepted the manslaughter plea on the basis of diminished responsibility and that P.S. was not responsible for his actions. And after just three and a half hours of legal arguments, Sir Michael Havers QC had conceded that he was wrong and that within one day, the prosecution team would be ready to go to trial and prosecute P.S. and prove the exact opposite that he knew exactly what he was doing and that these were premeditated acts of murder and violence rained down on women. That's truly mind-blowing to me. I don't think I've ever seen such a dramatic 180 at court. And then there was the matter of a conversation that P.S. had had with his wife Sonia at Armory Jail on January the 8th, 1981. Let me tell you about that. John Leach was one of the wardens there. His job was to supervise P.S. 24 hours a day in the prison's hospital wing. His duties included monitoring him and writing down conversations between the Sutcliffs. One of those conversations that he'd recorded was on January the 8th, 1981. P.S. told Sonia, I'm going to do a long time in prison, 30 years or more, unless I can convince people in here that I'm mad and I might get 10 years in the loony bin. They were his words, not mine. Or how about the fact that Sonia previously had been diagnosed with schizophrenia and so P.S. would know very well what the symptoms were and how to mimic them and convince the psychiatrist that he was unwell. And now contrast what the psychiatrist argued about P.S. with what P.S. said in his confession statement to police upon his arrest. Two totally different narratives. One at the point of arrest where he spoke freely and gave a 33-page statement of all the details because he wanted to tell them what happened and the other narrative crafted almost two months later having spent time languishing in prison with time on his hands thinking about it all and suddenly he remembers hearing voices. Oof, 
Thank goodness for Judge Borum. Thank goodness for his wisdom and experience of presiding over major criminal trials. He made the right decision and he understood the emotional temperature of the public. They wanted a trial. They wanted to see the wheels of justice in motion, not just wanted to see it, needed to see it. And so with just four days preparation by the Crown Prosecution Service, P.S. went on trial for 13 counts of murder and seven attempted murders on May the 5th, 1981, a trial that lasted just two weeks. And the controversy didn't end there. It wasn't long before Sir Michael Haver's QC came under some serious scrutiny once more. And I'm going to tell you all about that in next week's episode of The Forgotten Victims. And so I hope you'll join me back in the intelligence cell for part 10. Until then, be curious, ask questions, and always trust your instincts. And here's my final two cents before the episode wraps. The first is a huge thank you to all of you, my lovely listeners and crime analysts, for tuning in every week. The second is an ask. If you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review on whichever platform you listen to me on. It really helps others find me and helps with the ratings. So thank you, thank you. Crime Analyst is written, produced and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Tim Hansen at Half Ogre Studios. Cover art and graphics by Chris Raybottom at Syndicate. And music by Kilrude. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. 
Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.